0: everyone, and welcome to the Intro to Drama podcast. I'm your professor, Kate Given. This is one of the podcasts that covers the ideas behind the analytical tools we're learning to use in class. You'll have done some reading about these ideas already, and this podcast will hopefully clarify those ideas further. Make sure you're paying close attention because when we come together in our Zoom call on Tuesday, we'll be using these ideas as a group. The topic of today's podcast comes from David Ball's Backwards and Forwards. be going over chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9 today. And that might sound like a lot, but don't worry, these are all short concepts to cover. If we've been thinking about the previous parts of script analysis, like the foundation of a house we're building, these concepts are more like what color we're going to paint the walls, or picking out what cabinets and countertops we want in the kitchen. Important, and there are lots of individual elements, but each individual element is smaller. Chapter six talks about the importance of mystery within a play. Chapter seven deals with the ideas of theatricality itself. Chapter eight talks about exposition. How do we know what we know in the world of the play? And chapter nine deals with something Ball has called forwards. Much like theatricality, forwards are all about keeping your audience's attention. These concepts are what you'll use to answer questions six, seven, eight and nine in your hamlet script analysis assignment feel free to review this podcast whenever you need a refresher on this technique let's get started our first section of the podcast covers the concept of knowing which might sound like a broad concept but we're really narrowing it down to a specific kind of knowing which is who knows the answer to the mystery And to get to that question, we need to start even earlier with a different question. Does this play have a mystery in it? Because it might have a mystery, or it might not. Ball is working with Hamlet as his example, and he points out, hey, Hamlet for sure has a mystery as a key part. Hamlet's whole shtick is, is this ghost really my dead dad? Was he really right that Claudius killed him? And Ball points out, if you don't let that be a mystery, the whole play falls flat, and you're just irritated with Hamlet because he already knows the answer, for goodness sake, and just won't do anything. So you have to let there be a mystery. And we can extrapolate that out from Hamlet. Be open to finding mysteries everywhere. Of course, there are sneaky yet obvious examples, like Hamlet. Or maybe you're doing a literal mystery play so you know a mystery is there. But consider that a mystery might be in any play you encounter. In Wicked, we're faced with a mystery. Why was the Wicked Witch of the West like that? And by the end of the first song, we've added, what exactly was Glinda's relationship to her? Sitting here, maybe you feel like, oh, come on, everybody knows the premise of Wicked. We all know her name's Alphaba, and she's an activist that was vilified by the state. But that's the point. In your production, don't assume that your audience knows the story before it happens. If you start the play assuming that your audience knows what's going on, you're robbing yourself of all that delicious tension. So you ask yourself, if I didn't already know the end of the play, is there a mystery at the beginning? And once you've considered what the mystery might possibly be, you can ask yourself the next two important questions about this part of script analysis. One, when does the audience solve this mystery? And two, when do the characters solve this mystery? In Hamlet, the characters in the audience solve the mystery pretty close to one another. In Hamlet, we hear Claudius' confession of guilt in act three, scene one. Hamlet gets his proof in act three, scene two. Or maybe we could consider Romeo and Juliet. From the very first lines of the prologue, we're pretty sure the lovers come from different houses and are gonna end up dead. But Romeo and Juliet themselves don't know that they're from rival houses until Act 1, Scene 5, when they both find out separately from Juliet's nurse. So we can see that separation when the audience knows and then when the characters know always be sure you're not throwing away the mysterious tension that is baked into so many plays. If it seems obvious to you, make an effort to read the play with fresh eyes and ask yourself what a brand new audience member might see in the story. second section of our podcast this week covers the theme of, dun-dun-dun, theatricality. All right, that was a bad joke trying to make the way I said that little intro theatrical. Basically, theatricality is when things are just absolutely, terrifically interesting, and as a result, the audience really wants to pay attention to them. If something's theatrical, it might be super suspenseful. Act three of the ferryman relies on the suspense built by the setup of acts one and two and holds you in that suspense, aided by some excellent spooky sound design for the entire 45 minutes until everything comes to a head on the very last page of text. Or it might be powerfully important, like the deposition scene in Richard II, when King Richard renounces his crown, something that is very much not done in England, So witnessing it happen has to feel monumental. Something theatrical might give you a really deep feeling. Paul's monologue in A Chorus Line, where he talks about being a dancer and being gay and the horror of his parents seeing him in drag for the first time, but his dad still calls him his son. That monologue is long as hell, but famously captivates audiences because of the depth of feeling expressed there. A theatrical moment might just be very interesting, like moments when you're trying to track the pathos of characters in The Crucible, or just very fun. Think almost anything that happens in The Producers. These moments are important because they're exciting, first of all. And as we'll discuss later when we get to forwards, as theater artists, it's our job to keep our audiences engaged and interested. If they're not interested, they won't pay attention, they won't have a nice time, and then they're far less likely to spend the money on a ticket the next time they have an opportunity. So it behooves all of us to tell interesting stories and keep people engaged. And theatricality is one way we do that. Another important element of these really exciting, really engaging theatrical moments is that playwrights very often put the important information in those moments. If you've got the audience's attention, you may as well make use of it, right? A great example of theatricality is the end of Act 1 for almost any musical. If you can picture in Little Shop of Horrors, Seymour feeding bits of Orin to Audrey too, while the Greek chorus girls sing and the lights go all shadowy and scary and the music is ominous and foreboding. Or maybe the Act 1 finale of Les Miserables, with everyone and their mom on stage and singing about what they're going to be doing next. Or the end of Phantom of the Opera, with a literal chandelier crashing down onto the stage over the audience. And you can see each of these moments lets me know something important. Seymour is in for a bad ride because he's committed to feeding the man-eating plant. Everyone in Les Mis just told you what they're expecting from the future. In Phantom, we know that the Phantom means business and he's pissed. These are all important things to know in Act Two. So if you can find the super compelling parts of the play you're reading, you know where some of the most important information is. And even better, you know where to concentrate your efforts on making your staging exhilarating and compelling. section of our podcast is about exposition. And this one can get kind of tricky, not going to lie, so I need you to stay with me and it's going to be fine. So there are two kinds of exposition. And the first, super simple. It's stuff that everyone in the play already knows. It's part of the stasis we were talking about last week. Where are we? What year is it? What is our relationship? Say we were to start a play about your life. The first kind of exposition we're talking about would be taking everything that you know about yourself when you wake up in the morning and explaining that to an audience. Sometimes plays might use signs, maybe they fly them in, maybe they project them, to show what year it is and where we are. I think Lay Miz tends to use projections to establish date and time. Or maybe it's closed and setting. Designers are often responsible for providing visual exposition, especially in modern plays when playwrights know they can count on designers to make that happen for them. In older plays, we're more likely to actually speak about the setting. Like we've talked about in the Hamlet context lecture, classical plays don't always rely on scenery the way modern ones do. So the first kind of exposition, you watch out for it in the first 10 pages or so of any play. There's a chance it might crop up later, but this kind of exposition is almost always in the first few minutes of action because the playwright knows they have to set up the world for the audience. The second kind of exposition is where it might get tricky, but it'll be fine. So the first kind of exposition is stuff everyone knows. The second kind of exposition is stuff only some people know. It comes to play when those people who know the information reveal it to the people who previously did not know that same information. If you've ever read any Greek drama or you've ever read a play that has a messenger character in it, you've read or seen this kind of exposition take place. A messenger is the iconic example of the second kind of exposition. Someone's come in from out of town with information that nobody in town has yet, And so the messenger character tells them. And ideally, this information spurs someone to action. Imagine you've been hoping to buy a shirt from somewhere and out of the blue, your friend texts you to let you know they just saw the shirt has gone on sale. So your friend has information that you don't have yet, shares that information with you and our viewing audience, and that spurs you into action. You grabbed your debit card and jumped onto the website and before you knew it, you had an ethically produced yet suddenly affordable shirt making its way into your closet. Those are the moments you look for in a script. When does someone tell somebody else some information that was hitherto unknown? So, you have two kinds of exposition. The neutral things that everyone knows and the thing that some people know and tell other people along the course of the play, spurring the other people into action. The final segment we're covering in today's podcast is covering the concept of forwards. Forwards, as David Ball explains them, are another kind of thing that holds the audience's attention. But unlike theatricality, which holds the audience's attention in a particular moment, forwards actually exist to pull the attention to what happens next. Forwards do three things. They perk up the audience's attention, draw that attention forward, and keep that attention on the important bits. If you're reading or hearing a play and you feel yourself going, Ah, huh, I wonder what will happen next, or how are they going to make it out of this? Or maybe you hear something a little ironic and you think, uh ho Those are all moments of forwards. A classic forward is, I'm sure everything is going to be fine. How many times do you hear that in a film or a TV show or a play, and it's a smash cut into the way things are going to be the opposite of fine? So we're primed to hear such an expectation and go, all right, better pay attention to how this gets messed up. If in a play you hear the same word or idea repeated again and again, that can work as a forward. Like in a musical, if you're used to hearing the same strain of music again and again, and it comes back around, maybe you're going to sit up in your seat, wondering why that music is being used now. Significant props might draw the audience's attention forward, If any kind of weapon makes an appearance on stage, I'm tensed up until they use it. If they don't use it, sometimes I can keep that tension until the end of the play. Like the idea of Chekhov's gun, that if a gun is ever on stage, it ought to be part of the plot or else it's a waste of space. I'm waiting for that weapon to be used. And of course I might get a payoff for that tension and I might not, but if forward isn't about the payoff, it's about keeping you on the edge of your seat. Shakespeare uses a lot of couplets at the end of his scenes. Those rhyming lines that we see so much in Hamlet, the play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king, and so forth, these have a double function. On the one hand, if your attention has sort of drifted during the scene, these couplets summarize everything that has just happened and you can go, oh right, I remember now. On the other hand, they're pointing the audience specifically forward. Hey, watch out, Hamlet says, I'll be using the play as a device very soon, and I bet it'll help me catch the king, so listen up. It's worth mentioning, before we wrap, why forwards are so important to theater. We can find these in other narrative art forms, like novels and poetry, but we find them more in theater. And that's because, like we were talking about in the theatricality segment, it's our job to keep people engaged. If our audiences have decided to give two hours of their time to us personally, we had better deliver on our end of the social contract and make it worth their time. Forwards go hand in hand with theatricality. We want audiences going, what is going to happen next? We don't want them going, you know, this is like a Victor Hugo-esque 15 page lecture about the Paris sewer system right after our hero has potentially been rescued. And I don't actually care about 15 pages of the Paris sewer system, so I think I'll go to the bathroom. Victor Hugo's writing a novel. He can do as he likes, and he does. By the point he goes on this tangent, his reader has sat with him through plenty of other tangents, and keeps coming back for more. His reader has decided to read a book that's over a thousand pages. Victor Hugo's reader has decided to sit with things when they get a little boring. The audience member of a theater, on the other hand, has come for two to four short hours of entertainment. It's the duh-duh in Law & Order. It's the suspense before the next commercial break. That's what we're doing the whole time. Keep their attention on stage. Keep their attention on what comes next. That's the role of a forward in a play. That's going to do it for the Intro to Drama podcast for this week. We talked about understanding and preserving the mysteries that exist within plays and when the solutions to those mysteries are known. We talked about theatricality, the hyper-compelling pieces of theater where playwrights store important information so the audience picks up on it. We talked about exposition. Recall there are two types. The one everyone knows, the other some people know and others find out. And we also talked about forwards that draw the audience's attention, well, forward. I hope you found this podcast interesting and helpful. I can't wait to discuss it with all of you during our class time. Take care, stay safe, and I'll see you at our Zoom call on Tuesday.